This podcast is brought to you in association with From Sweden with Love, one of the oldest fan sites dedicated to the world of 007. Online since 2004 and also on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Why not check them out today? James Bond 007.se Nobody does it better. <laughs> or as they say in Stockholm these days, Ingen gör det bättre. Hello, I'm John Audy. I'm a stunt historian, author, broadcaster and producer, and the man behind Behind the Stunts on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Welcome to this episode and a series of podcasts dedicated the action stunts in the James Bond movies. My new book, Ever Heard of Evil Knievel, is the definitive guide to everything action-packed in the film series. It looks at the stunts, the performers, the coordinators and the stories behind these incredible moments captured on film. You'll hear clips from some of the interviews that have been undertaken over the years, where applicable, and sound clips from the movies themselves. The book, podcast and YouTube series are also to be used as educational tools to learn from and to wander at. The fifth original Bond film and Bob Simmons is once again up to his neck in action. This time a bigger challenge presents itself, as the end of the film requires a battle between ninjas and the staff who attend the day-to-day -day running of Blofeld's secret volcano. Built on the back lot at Pinewood Studios, it was enormous, and alongside China's Great Wall could probably be seen from space. This week we look at some of the action on the film, and are joined by two stuntmen who worked on the picture, Rocky Taylor and Vic Armstrong. Let's start with one of the very best fights in the series. Good evening. The Asato office fight has always been a favourite of mine. We've already mentioned Bob Simmons' brilliance when it comes to a punch-up. Well, here he has an added feature. His opponent is Peter Mavier, a Samoan wrestler who was the grandfather of Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Just think, one false move, and we'd never have had the Fast and Furious franchise. Hmm. Simmons worked out a fight with Mavia over a three-day period, and allowed the big man to shine during the tussle. At one point, a manoeuvre is called where Simmons throws Mavia over his shoulder. If you look closely at the footage, you'll see Simmons' left ankle bending under the strain of the added weight. This must have hurt, and yet nothing stops until the director says cut. This was also one of the first movies to explore the trampoline explosion. Bob Simmons wanted to see a stuntman flying through the air after the blast had gone off. After all, they call it being blown up, right? So trampolines were placed out of shot. Martin Grace and Cliff Diggins were two stuntmen who bounced together, one in a white boiler suit and the other in a red one. They would count themselves in 
and cue the special effects man to let off the explosion. The idea being they bounced down onto the trampoline, then propelled themselves up and forward as the explosion goes off. On screen, it looks as though the blast has sent the two men high into the sky. Let's take a breather for a moment as we let two stuntmen talk us through what being on You Only Live Twice was really like. Firstly, Rocky Taylor. I was only a young lad then, and most of the stuntmen, you know, were stuntmen. And yes. They did. Bob Simmons yeah. came up with an idea of getting a bit of rubber. You come down, they put ropes on the top of the ceiling, you come down the rope on the rubber, you squeezed it, and it stops you. Well, sometimes you didn't stop. Yeah. Sometimes you carried on going. People did, didn't people, they? A few people done their ankles. It wasn't. It wasn't safe, but. But know, certainly, it, as far as uh, as far as the numbers were concerned, I mean, there weren't that many stu actual stuntmen. No, I think, there, I think in, in total on that one, if I remember, there must have been about 20, 30 stuntmen. Right. On on the big big calls, about thirty maximum. Mm. And the you rest know. were made up from. You know, uh, judo clubs or gymnasiums or guys exactly. who are fit. Exactly. That's how. I, if I wanted somebody, I go down to my judo club and bring them in. Like Val Musetti. Yes. He was a stuntman. I brought him in. Terry, right. Terry Beard. Yeah, brought him in. And uh, you know, because they could react and they could do falls. Like that's how I got it. Because I was a black belt, I used to be able to do falls on the deck. So because of because of your judo experience and your flexibility, were you yeah. involved in you I suppose you were involved in a great many of those um explosions and reactions that were taking place? Oh, I know yeah. Martin I Grace mean, and that, Chris Webb were doing trampoline explosions. Were you in the same boat? Yeah, you're right. That's 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 why I was you. So that's how I learned my trade, because yeah. of my flexibility. And I think that was the obviously the and no, none of the other stuntmen could do it. No, this was done, it. They'd never done judo. No, no, because judo was only just really making a making an just appearance. Just coming in, it? just came in on the Blackman. It was on the Blackman Diner rig, you know, all that yeah. judo in the all that all all new all new stuff. And I was fortunate. I got to black belt with with uh, Dougie Robinson and Joe Robinson. On, that's a, right. Yeah. In a judo in a club called the Judo Choir in London. What was it like from from your point of view of turning up on that must have been the biggest set you'd ever been on, surely by that time? You're right. You can't you can't believe how excited I was, you know. Yeah. All of a sudden I'm now in, you know, with Sean Connery as 007. It was just um, mind boggling. And thank God my, my that's where people say you, you you're very lucky you had your father in it. That's where my father first introduced me to Primer Studios. And Sean, when Sean, yeah, yeah. I, remember seeing, I remember seeing Sean in the makeup room putting his wig on. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah, not his own hair in those days. No. Um, and now let's hear from Vic Armstrong. And it is a fascinating film. Uh, you've been pretty busy leading up to it, and this was must have been a huge set, firstly to work on, but also the fact that you've got Bill Weston to thank, I think, for for getting you on the picture in the first place, if I'm not mistaken. Absolutely, yeah, dear Bill. I met him earlier in '66 when we both went for an audition for a movie with Gregory Peck in Switzerland called "The Bells of Hell Go Tingling a Ling," which right. I I got the the part. Uh, doubling Ian McKellen when he was a young, young man. And uh, 
I went out there and had a nine-week contract and we, we worked for about seven or six or seven weeks and they cancelled the movie and I got paid off luckily the nine weeks and came back and I'd met Bill as I said at the audition for it at MGM when MGM used to be an EMI student at, uh, in Boreham Wood. Right. And we, we became friends and I got back and I called him and I said, you know, you know, the film got cancelled, but I got paid, great, all this stuff. He said, okay, well, look, why don't you go to Pinewood and see, take my place on, on You Only Live Twice. Right. Bill was working on 2001 with Kubrick and it was going right. on and on and on and on and on. And he said, just go up there and tell them you're going to replace me, which you don't actually do that. But anyway, bless him, I went along and Bob Simmons was the coordinator and George Leeps was his, his partner on it. And I met both of them and I was just awestruck, you know, going to the Pinewood Studios, which was the first studio I'd ever worked at anyway. Mm. And I saw this massive, great building all covered in, in canvas scaffolding building. It was bigger than St. Paul's Cathedral, right. and which is on the back lot where the 007 <laughs> stage is now. Right. And I went in there and met them and everything else. And it was huge. It was just this great amphitheater inside. And uh, they said, oh, we're, we're looking for, for stuntmen to slide down a rope from the top of the roof there. And it's like 125 feet. Uh, do you think you could do it? I said, oh, yeah, of course I can, you know, no problem. And I'm thinking, oh my God, that will never happen. Yeah, and I, I got the job anyway and went along there. And in those days I was, I was very fit and I was a, a jockey. So my power to weight ratio is very good and so, <laughs> It worked out that I was great sliding down the ropes. You know, you have to handle your own weight sliding down. And they had this system rigged at, uh, where you have an inch, just over an inch diameter rope. Okay. And you have a piece of hose pipe split and you put round it and you use that as a, as a brake shoe. So right. you're basically holding and using your own weight. So I did that and then I got advanced even more upwards. And I became one of the guys that came down one-handed using a, a device to decelerate us. And so you could come down one-handed firing a machine gun. Got it. Okay. And uh, so I was now up with a hierarchy. But the whole thing about You Only Live Twice for me was the fact that it was just uh, networking with all these stuntmen. Because every stuntman in England that was not working, and there were very few not working. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, uh, there were a lot not working, I should say. And um, so I met all these stuntmen from Joe Powell to everybody all the way down the line, you know, so it, it still been in good stead. Oh, yeah, there was probably 20 or 30, 35 maybe stunt people in those days. Right. And they wanted uh, over 100 people to be ninjas on the attack. So they came in from all walks of life, as you say, from taxi drivers to bouncers on the door to all sorts of thugs, the underworld, amazing amount of characters. <laughs> Tom, Absolutely. Dick and Harry all thrown in. <laughs> oh yeah, but fantastic characters, you know, and you could buy anything you wanted on the set. There were people bringing in, you know, <laughs> smoked salmon to sherry. It was just before Christmas. So everybody did all their Christmas shopping from all these dodgy deals that all these people had got going. I, I bought my first car on it with my first stunt adjustment, which was oh, well, 90 pounds. And I bought a Ford Anglia, like Harry Potter drives. Uh, right. I bought that with 90 pounds. And I said to the guys, yeah, it's got bald tires. Could anybody do tires? I went, oh, yeah, what's the, what's the make and all everything else? I told them. So the next day I drove to the set and somebody turned up with a rented Ford <laughs> Anglia and just swapped the wheels <laughs> over. Bond is alive. Unless you kill him, Mr. Osato. Don't tell me you let him go. I gave number 11 the strictest orders to eliminate him. 
And did she? She failed. You should have killed him yourself. You had plenty of opportunity. This organization does not tolerate failure. I know, but these... Osato and Number 11 are called in to see Blofeld to find out which one let Bond live. Osato blames Helga, and Blofeld believes him. As she walks across the bridge, he places his foot on a pedal underneath the desk which activates a section of the bridge. It drops down, and Helga becomes a starter for the piranha fish lurking below the surface. The actress Karen Dorr is doubled by stuntwoman Jenny LeFray, who performed the gag twice for the cameras, one for the take, and again for the world's press who were gathered to capture the moment. The collapsing of the bridge caused Jenny to receive a very nasty bruise to her behind. Even though she had some padding on under her wardrobe, her slight frame meant that padding or no padding, the first thing to hit the collapsing surface was her gluteus maximus, uh, or minimus as the case may be. The second take had her wearing a great deal more padding. Did it help? No, not really. Don't forget to subscribe and check out the episodes on the Behind the Stunts YouTube channel. Until next time, bye-bye for now.